beautiful season. We're so glad that you chose to join us for worship today. My name is Adrian, and I'm one of the pastors here at this church. And if we haven't met, love to connect you after the church, after the service. Love to meet you. Um, but this is a great time of year. We also know it is a painful, difficult time of the year for many people, as uh, many of us are missing loved ones at this time of year. But I do pray that there would be a measure of hope for you, a measure of joy for you, as we celebrate each week in the anticipation of our celebration of Christ, uh, the newborn King, which we'll remember here in a couple weeks. Well, that was Luke 1, 26 to 38 that we just heard, and that's where we'll be for the most part this morning. If you want to open there with me in your Bibles, that'll help you out today, or if you follow along in your phone, that's fine too. Uh, but we'll be in Luke 1, 26 to 38, the angel and Mary for the most part today. It seems to me, as I hear that story anyway, you really got to have faith to celebrate Christmas. Uh, I've been fortunate to travel to some different places and been in different countries and have been very fortunate to have a number of friends from different countries that maybe haven't had as much experience with Christianity as we have in America. And I, I've noticed that a number of these friends, even if they hadn't yet uh, heard or really embraced the gospel message of Jesus Christ, uh, many times in their lands they still celebrate Christmas in some way, in some shape, usually with some, some gift giving. And I know there's lots of folks in America who love the lights and the big meals and all the celebrations while well, with family and the gift giving and all of that, and, and I'm for all of that too. I like all that too, <laughs> okay? But it seems to me to really celebrate Christmas, you gotta have faith. Like, think of that story that we just heard. To believe that God left the glory of heaven and he became a baby, conceived in a virgin Mary, and that he entered into time and space, left the glory of all eternity, entered into time and space to dwell amongst us and to live an ordinary life in the dirt of this world my, oh, my, that takes some faith, doesn't it? And to believe today in the midst of some of the disappointments that many of us are going through, some of the struggles and the trials and losses though, that we face, that God is still near to us, that the words of the Christmas story would still be true, that he is actually Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. To actually believe that he is God with us in whatever we're going through today that takes some faith, does it not? Amen. I want to tell you a story though, this morning about a man who chose to believe that God was still very near to him even when the circumstances of life became utterly disappointing for him and the congregation that he served. His name is John Wade. And uh, he learned the beauty of the Christmas story in the midst of incredible strife that had developed between the monarch in England in the 1700s and the Vatican in Rome, the Pope in Rome 
in the mid-1700s. And the strife between these two, as the English monarchy was seeking to live on its own and uh, seeking to live separate from the Roman Empire and wanted to expel Catholics from within England, the strife between the Roman Empire and the monarch in England had reached an all-time high. And in the 1740s, the uh, king of England, a man by the name of King George II, decided to expel dissenters from England. And this was a time that the church and the state were one and the same. And if you disagreed well with the church or the state, well, you were punished by both. And so King George II was starting to punish dissenters of the British Empire that would dissent against his, his reign and the Anglican religion that was developing well within the Church of England at the time. And so what that looked like was ordinary Christians who maybe were not Anglicans well were being punished. And ordinary Catholics that maybe were not Anglicans likewise were being punished. It's very fascinating to, to me. Here's just an interesting um, bonus for you today. Okay, this is not part of the message. Lucky you, you get a bonus. There, there are many people today that want the same thing that was happening back in the mid-1700s in England. In America today, there's a lot of folks that want a theocracy of sorts to develop in which church and state would be one and the same. Can I just tell you that that is not a good thing? Can I just tell you that from history, again and again, whenever that has happened, the church has lost its purity and people have lost their freedom. Like the very last thing that we want is for the church to be dictated by the state or for the two of them to, to be one and the same. That'd be the last thing the church wants. That's a bonus. When it happened in England, Non-Anglican non Protestants, including many of our ancestors who came to the American colonies, including my own ancestors, when this happened in England, well, what happened was non-Anglican Protestants fled their native England and came to America where there was rumor of this getting started, a proper separation between church and state where there was respect for the freedom of religion. Ooh. Meanwhile, while non-Anglican Protestants were fleeing to the American colonies, what was happening to Catholics well, was this. Catholics in the 1740s in England started to be hunted down. And they went underground. And many of them in the midst of this holy war had under, hid underground for quite some time. And in some cases, these priests would take their small fledgling congregations and they would flee to another nation where they would find refuge in some other country. In 1745, as King George II devolved into this nationalistic holy war fervor, a priest by the name of John Wade gathered some of his congregation and they did just that. They ran for their lives from their native England only to find refuge in a foreign land that they wanted nothing to do with called France. Wade would forever lose 
his ancestral homeland. He never got to return to the home of his ancestors in England. And as he's hiding out in the years thereafter, 1745, he takes refuge in the story of another refugee family. As he writes the words of the most famous Christmas hymn that has ever been written. O come all ye faithful. Into that context, John Wade wrote these words. O come all ye faithful. Joyful and triumphant. O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold him, born the king of angels. Sing choirs of angels, sing in exultation. Sing all ye citizens of heaven above. Glory to God, all glory in the highest. Oh, come let us adore him. Oh, come let us adore him. Sing with me. Okay, maybe not. <laughs> okay, I, I won't sing for you. I like you. A couple weeks ago, I actually left my mic on. Maybe you remember this, sadly. I left my mic on when I, this also is a bonus, when I got off stage and... Uh, <laughs> And some of you got to hear my voice. Again, I'm so sorry. As I sang out with joy to God, and by the time it gets to heaven, it's edited down, and it sounds nice. Um, and one of our worship team members, God bless him, came to me after the service, and he just gently whispered in my ear. He said, Adrian, next time when you stand up on stage, can you be sure to turn off your mic? <laughs> Anyway, O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Yea, Lord, we greet thee, born this happy morning. Jesus, to thee be all glory given. Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. I love this line. Yea, Lord, we greet thee, born this happy morning. I hope that's a line that you can say on Christmas morning. Again, it fascinates me that John Wade wrote that line, and it was such a helpful, comforting line for him when he was a refugee. He wanted to say, Yea, Lord, we greet thee from my native England. Instead, here I am with this small fledgling community kind of living underground. Yea, Lord, we greet thee from this settlement in France. It's kind of like, this is what I wanted for Christmas. And here's what I got for Christmas. And the two are, are not the same. I really hope and I'm, I'm praying for you this Christmas season, praying for myself as well though, this Christmas season, for our family also, that, that we would have the kind of Christmas faith that would remind us again and again that the present ugly that we experience is not comparable to the future beauty that we will experience. Okay, and Christmas faith, like all the different characters in the Christmas narrative, remind us of this central truth of Christianity that future beauty 
is greater than our present ugly. I wonder if you'd say that with me out loud from the screen. Let's read that all together here. Christmas faith reminds us that future beauty is greater than present ugly. Every single character of the Christmas story is an example of one who goes through some experience that we would describe as ugly, and yet in their faith they learn that beauty, the future beauty, is far greater than their present ugly. Friends, it's when we are on the mountaintop that we get the views, but it's when we're in the valley that we get the fruit. This is just the reality of life. From the mountaintop are beautiful views. Down deep in the valley of life, in the midst of pain, that is where the fruit grows. And we see it from one character after another, again and again in the Christmas narrative. Let me just share with you a few of these where we see pain precedes pleasure. Think of Joseph. Joseph hears that his fiancée is pregnant and he's never been with her. Ouch. Okay, and so he's kind of racking his mind, what do I do with this? And it's way bigger than our contemporary engagement. A A betrothal in the first century was you are married to this woman. You just aren't together sexually yet. That's what it was. You're married to this person, but you're not one sexually with her, and all of a sudden, she becomes pregnant. Like, talk about turning something so beautiful into something so ugly so quickly. And he's racking his mind with all this. How am I going to divorce her quietly because he's an honorable and righteous man. He doesn't want to embarrass her. And as he's thinking through all of that, an angel comes and whispers to him, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit and the son that will be given unto you will save your people from their sins. And it's faith in him, it's faith in Christ that Joseph has in this moment that enables him to endure ridicule that's coming his way. Enables him to endure embarrassment and shame that's coming his way. Or how about the story that we just read from Mary? Look again at verse 28. The angel went to Mary and said, greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled. I underlined in my Bible the word greatly troubled. Duh, she was greatly troubled. (laughs) Like perhaps the greatest understatement in the Bible, there it is. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. And so she goes back and forth with the angel, trying to understand what this is all about. In the midst of going back and forth, eventually she says, how will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. And she's saying to herself right now, how am I going to explain this to Joseph? How am I going to explain this to mom? How am I going to explain it to my dad? Would you believe your daughter if she came to you with this claim? 
Of course you wouldn't. These are the kinds of things that she's thinking about. And then beyond that, she's thinking, maybe I will be divorced. And therefore, as a result of that, as a 15-year-old girl, I'll forever have this stain upon my life, living in isolation, dependent on the community around me, in that culture, never to be married again. And she says these words in response to it all. She says, okay, Lord, bring it. May it be to me according to your word. Man, that is one of the greatest statements in the entire Bible. May your word to me be fulfilled. I am the Lord's servant. Whatever you would say, God, that's what I want. Nothing else. I want nobody else's will for my life. I want your will for my life. Whatever you would say, may your word be fulfilled even in me. It's unbelievable faith that God might bring beauty from the ashes of her life. Or how about Jesus as well? Like he downsized from the beauty of heaven into the slums of this world. Like heaven will make Hawaii look like a ghetto. Heaven will make Hawaii look like a little slum. That's how beautiful heaven will be. And Jesus leaves that for the dirt of this world. Like he enters into violent Bethlehem And then after violent Bethlehem, he enters into becoming a refugee in Egypt. Don't forget that. Jesus was a refugee in Egypt. And then after that, he's raised in a nobody, dusty little nothing town called Nazareth. Like, is there any wonder that people across the world who are financially impoverished feel attracted to Jesus? People in South America, people in Africa, so many people in the inner cities of America are so deeply attracted to, to Jesus, but because he came the, this way for those who were down and out at the end of their rope. And out of that ugly, the angel tells Mary of future beauty for her son. He'll be great and he'll be called the son of the most high God. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. And he will bring joy to the world because he is still joy to the world. He'll bring light to this world because he's still light to the world and he'll bring peace to the world Well, one day he'll bring peace to this violent world. He says that he'll do it and one day he'll do it. And just a little seed of faith directed at Christ our King is oftentimes the difference between sufferings overcoming us and us being able to overcome our suffering. Now, I know saying all this about faith like, there's people in this room, I'm sure, and folks while watching online today that you just say, I don't believe it, Adrian. Like, it's too much to believe this Christmas story that you describe. It's too much to believe that God would incarnate the, this earth as flesh and blood and enter into to this world the, the way the Christmas story suggests. And I have a healthy dose of skepticism, and I just can't believe that, Adrian. And I get that because I also have a healthy dose of skepticism. And I certainly didn't believe this for a long, long time in my life. And if that's where you are today, you are most welcome here with whatever you believe. And friends, Christian belief doesn't actually begin with believing that. Christian belief begins with Easter, not with Christmas. 
Okay, like the reason that I believe in the Christmas story is not because there was some genetic test done on Jesus and that seals the deal for it. Okay, I believe in the Christmas story because I believe in the Easter story. I believe in the Christmas story, but because Jesus actually came to this world to live a perfect life, and he offered to vicariously die for you and me to carry our sins up to, onto a tree called Calvary, to die in our place and then rise again in glory, just as he said he would did, just as he said he would do, and history demonstrates that he actually pulled it all off, and therefore I trust everything that he says. Okay, it's based on resurrection truth that I have Christmas faith. And I would encourage you to hold on to the same, even if you have a healthy dose of skepticism today, like I always have. Christmas faith is based on redemption history. Friends, the central theme of the entire Bible is redemption. It's the central theme. God is a redeemer. God is a rescuer. God is a lover. God is always looking for the next one to come and redeem. And so Mary works through all of her doubts and then she sings this song that's packed with reminders of God's redemptive acts in history. Mary has this like sanctified memory that she remembers the ways God has intervened in her past as well as the past of her family, the past of her nation, her culture, and she recalls those to mind. I encourage you to study later on the rest of Luke chapter one. I'm not gonna go into it in depth right now, but Mary, out of her memory and out of this word from the angel, she sings to God this song. In this moment, she writes a song to God and it's recorded for us in the scriptures in which she says, God, you have performed mighty deeds in the past with your outstretched arm. And God, you have been strong against the proud. And you have been loving and merciful to lift up the humble. And you have opposed those who have trusted in their riches and their wealth, but you've been kind and gracious to those who are impoverished. And God, you have remembered your promises to your servant Abraham, and from generation to generation, you have come through to your people Israel in the past, and so out of that, I trust in you that you're going to do something great yet again today. Friends, it's her faith on that first Christmas that's based on the way God has acted in the past that gives her strength to believe God's going to keep on acting in the present and then acting in the future and he can bring good out of heartache. I, I wonder, do you, do you keep a record of what God has done in your life? Do you keep a record of what God has done in your family's story? Apparently that's what Mary did. That would be a really good practice for your faith. To remember, as the psalmist tells us to do again and again, that one generation tells of your good deeds to another generation, oh God. I'll just say again, it's this remembrance of God's intervention in the past that bolsters our faith for the present and for the future. Okay, I, I don't believe in the incarnation of Christ by itself, I believe in the resurrection of Christ, which then leads me to believe in the incarnation of Christ. You see? 
You, you, you look at Easter faith, and that leads to Christmas faith. You look at the way God has intervened in your life in the past, and that leads you to believe for what God might do and how he might redeem something difficult that you're going through in the present. And we have very good reason to believe that Jesus Christ literally rose from the grave in time and space on that first Easter Sunday, which gives us, again, faith to believe everything else, though, that's written here. And that's to say nothing of the very good reasons, though, that we have to believe in the reliability of the New Testament documents. And that's to say nothing of the fact that it takes way, way, way more faith to believe this beautiful universe just accidentally came into existence is like some kind of cosmic accident than it does to believe that there's an intelligent designer behind it. So you review. If you're struggling with faith right now, you review. What good reasons do I have to believe from the past, from my redemption history, from creation, from resurrection, from the reality that the New Testament documents are more reliable than any other documents of antiquity? And then our faith is bolstered, and we're able to celebrate Christmas in a different way. Faith is not like, uh, I think it was Mark Twain that said, faith is believing what you know ain't so. False. False. Faith is not a blind leap. Faith is a wise step. A wise step into a bit of unknown based on good reasons and logical evidence and the strength of God's work in you and me over time. And because of the way God has showed up and showed out again and again across our history, we believe, we come back again and again to, to this, we believe that God is able to work all things for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. And if you can choose to dwell in that over these next couple weeks, to dwell in the truth of the Christmas story, then the result will be a different celebration of Christmas for you this year. I really believe that if we would have faith that this actually happened, that God chose to enter into time and space to identify with us, then the result would be something like this. We would have more of an experience of the love of God for us today. Christmas faith has the capacity to blanket you in the love of Christ once again. Anyone need a little bit more of the love of Christ right now? Okay, I see a few hands. I'll raise two hands for the rest of you. I am not ashamed to admit that I deeply need the love of Christ. I am not ashamed to admit that I am a needy person. I need God who came even for me. Friends, there's two postures that you can go into Christmas with. You can go to Christmas with the typical self-made American man or woman posture that's kind of like this. Kind of like this. Or you can go into Christmas with a soft-hearted receptivity that says, I'm needy for God.
And there's something that you're going through right now that you need, God. I know it's true. And you say, God, I need you to blanket me in your love again this holiday. It begins not with, oh, come, let us adore him. It begins with, God adores you. That's where the Christian story begins. It's not our love for God first and foremost, it's God's love for you and me. And so will we come to God like this? God, I receive your love. I need your love. And then we would say as a response, oh come let us adore him. Oh come let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ. The Lord has come. And so if you're willing, I wonder if you would just open your hands with me. You don't have to if you don't want. But as we wrap up, I'll invite the band to come forward. And if you're willing to open your hands with me and close your eyes and just listen to a beautiful quote from a man named Brennan Manning, on the love of God. And this is a man who was an alcoholic for much of his life. And he fought that demon for a long, long, long time. And he won victory and then he lost. And he won victory and then he lost. But he learned the love of God for him was enough no matter how many times he fell on his face. I'd like you to hear this and then I'd like to pray over you. Do you believe that the God of Jesus loves you beyond worthiness and unworthiness? Beyond fidelity and infidelity? That he loves you in the morning sun and he loves you in the evening rain? That he loves you when your intellect denies it? When your emotions refuse it? When your whole being rejects it, he still loves you. Do you believe that God loves you without condition and without reservation? And that he loves you this moment, not as you should be, but just the way you are? Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you that you sent your Son to identify with us right where we are today. We thank you that you came, Lord Jesus, to our poverty and our weakness, and you give us an example of what a truly beautiful life looks like. And you gave yourself as a sacrifice for our failures to bring us back to God. We thank you that you came to lavish the love of a lovesick father even on us. Father, would you grow our faith in that this Christmas? We admit that we don't have all the answers right now. Our faith is not perfect, and sometimes we're not even quite so certain. But we know that you're big enough to handle us with whatever questions we might ask. 
And so we ask, God, that you would be very near to us, growing our faith, strengthening us well with your love, even this Christmas season. And Father, for those who are drenched in pain right now in this room, we pray, God, that you would give a special measure of your comfort and your presence, the truth that you are Emmanuel, and even a glimmer of hope in the future of how you will bring beauty from the ashes that they're currently experiencing. Thank you, God, for your great love for each and every one of us, for all of us in this room and those who are watching online, for everyone that we will encounter this week. We say by faith, thank you for your love. May we adore you a little bit more. In Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.